today we're wrapping up the seven churches of Revelation and we're on the seventh church. And so we've been talking about how uh, John on the island of Patmos has written these, uh, this, this letter to different people and, uh, and different churches, different messengers, representatives of each church and Laodicea is the last one. But uh, before we get there, um, this last church, Laodicea, is the church that maybe, it's the church that he talks about the most. It's the church that probably most resembles the state of the church today right now. And so it has a lot to say to us. I talked a few weeks ago how we see churches uh, that preach the gospel and entire denominations and they've given up on the gospel. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to say anything's wrong. If there is no sin, then, then Jesus didn't need to die. The gospel makes no sense and there is no redemption. And so when they do that, people just flee. Well, some of you have lived that and actually that's a story that I want to share uh, today. One of our own, Jerry. My name is Jerry Ash, and I attend Grace Point in Northwood. I was born in uh, Willard, Ohio, and my folks moved to Burgoon, and so I attended, my home church was Burgoon. It was a EUB church when, when I grew up, and I accepted Christ when I was nine or 10 years old. My wife, Jean, and I got married and went back over to Burgoon. I think in 1967, they become a United Methodist. And things changed quite a bit in uh, the pastors we got. Uh, none of them really pushed the gospel to lead people to Jesus. And, and that, that bothered me because I had experienced that when I was a kid. And so Gene and I decided we needed to leave. So we went over to Salem and Bethel, another Methodist church. And they had a Wesleyan pastor. And it was growing. I mean, it was clearful. Then... We started to go down, and they gave us another pastor, and then they moved him, and we never recouped from that. We just kept going down, and we opted to close because there's only about 10 families there. wasn't enough to be in ministry. We closed the church. We went to Grace Church in Fremont, and that was in July of 2019. Then when Tiffin opened up, we went to Tiffin, and spent three years in Tiffin. I have never experienced anything like that in my life. People were coming, they were being saved, and it, this was a highlight of my life. It was, it was amazing. We moved up to Otterbein in Pimmerville because my wife has got Alzheimer's. We found out that they had church at Northwood, which is closer than Tiffin or Fremont was to us. So we come here, and uh, Harold's a great pastor. I love to see people come to Christ. We need to hear the gospel preached in the churches and outside the churches. If a young person would come to Christ in their youth like I did and depend on the Holy Spirit to guide and direct them, they'll live a content life, a life full of blessings with challenges and problems and things, but you'll have a guidance and you'll have the love of Christ that will take you through it.
When churches leave the gospel, there's no reason to stay there. They have nothing to offer us. And we see that happening in our culture, in our country, all the time. It's been a process for the last 40 years. It's just been happening and happening. We're, as we look at Laodicea, remember, uh, John is the last apostle left. Uh, he's been exiled to Patmos. All the other disciples have been killed. So he's here, and he's writing a letter to these seven churches that are all in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. These are not all the churches here. He just picked seven, and he's writing to them, or, or Jesus did. And then we're at the last one to kind of complete this whole circle, which is Laodicea. Laodicea is next to a couple other towns that come into play as we look at its story. And one is Colossae. That's a, the, if you know the book Colossians, that was written to the church in Colossae. And then there's a town, Hierapolis, all three of those towns, those other two towns are within 10 miles of Laodicea. Um, Colossae is about 10 miles, and then Heropolis is about eight miles away. And, uh, and they were kind of known as a triad city. And uh, um, the, we've been talking about kind of the unique aspects of the city, the advantages of the um, city of Laodicea basically are three. First of all, it was a wealthy city. It was a banking center. And we know that actually from history, uh, there's a historical documentation that a Roman statesman named Cicero, some of you might uh, recognize that name, he cashed bills of exchange in Laodicea while traveling in 51 BC. That's about 150 years before John is writing this letter to them. And they, the city was wealthy for that, but they were also wealthy for two other reasons. Um, that area had a certain uh, breed of sheep that produced a soft raven black wool that was highly sought, sought after, and they sort of had the market cornered on that. So that was a big deal that attributed a lot, contributed a lot to their economy. And then also Laodicea was at home to a school of medicine that was located inside a pagan temple, and that uh, they were known, Laodicea was known for two types of medicine. One was for the ears, I don't have anything to do with this morning, but the other one was an eye ointment, and this eye ointment proved to be very effective, and so it was highly sought after, so much so that people were traveling from the, from the east in Asia and from uh, the West in Europe to come and buy this where they actually had a way of, at first it was an ointment, but they actually got, have figured out how to sort of dehydrate it into powder form and that was easier for people to transport than they can rehydrate it. And then they even got it to where when they got it in that powder, they're actually pounding it together to make like a pill form so it could be rehydrated. So those three things contributed to the wealth of Laodicea. They had money, banking center, that's where people stored a lot of gold. They also had this famous black wool and this famous eye ointment. Now, the disadvantage of Laodicea was that it uh, was built where two trade routes cross, which is kind of common on a plateau, but their water source, where the city was founded, was really not adequate for the city as it grew. So they had this stream. Sometimes it would dry up in the summertime. It didn't really produce enough water for them to use. So they had to pipe in water 
from the surrounding hillside. And so that's what they did. They used aqueducts. Some of them were underground to, to pipe this water and to get it to the city. And then when they piped that water, uh, they built extensive distribution systems, which this is just kind of a, a, what looks like now a big rock sticking up on the plain. But it's where this water came in off an aqueduct and then poured down into all these different pipes that went to different places in the city. It went for drinking water, for public baths, for fountains. They have latrines that you can see now that are made out of marble, you know. They, they would take care of that. Street drains, they had all that in Laodicea, and then this water would, would go there. But because they piped it in for six miles, um, it, was, it was neither hot nor warm. And, and I see hot or warm because... Uh, Colossae was known for their cool spring water. And Heropolis, which is only eight miles away, you can actually see it from Laodicea on the high ground. They were known for a hot spring, a hot mineral spring there that people went to soak in because they thought it had medicinal value. Kind of like green springs used to be way back in the day, only a hot spring, hot mineral spring. And, so, and people still go there today and soak in this hot spring. So, you know, that's, that's what's going on there. But when they piped this in, um, it was just tepid, it was neither hot nor cold. And because of all the mineral deposits in the pipes, um, it, had, it had a mineral content that didn't help the water's taste. So here's the clay pipe, the original clay pipe. And then here's all the deposit that was built up from piping that water. Again, cutting in sideways, here's the clay pipe, and then all that white is the deposits. It didn't taste good. So as rich as they were, they had this problem. Their water was bad. And then as we start, so that's the city of Laodicea. Now each time Jesus describes a city, as, as he addresses a city, he describes himself in a different way. And so we want to look at that, and that's how he starts. And so how, how does he describe himself to Laodicea? We see that in Revelation 3, 14. He says this, To the angel or messenger of the church in Laodicea write, and here's Jesus identifying himself as the author. He says, the amen. Now, amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, amen, that means so be it, or true, or that's right, or spot on. It's firm, it's fixed, it cannot change. And when uh, Jesus, in his ministry, if you'll remember, he would start, start off a parable or a teaching and he'd say what? Truly, truly, it's the same type word. He's saying, amen, amen, this is fixed, this is firm, this is truth, before he would, he would give, his, uh, give his teaching. Now, so the amen, and then he describes himself three ways. Second, the faithful and true witness. This is just an expansion on the amen, that Jesus is the perfectly faithful, the perfectly true witness about what's, what's going on. He speaks truth, and then it, this is important because he's going to say, I know your deeds, and he knows what he's talking about. He knows their condition, and then the third way, the origin of of the creation of God, and he says, says this. So that origin is talking about what we learn in different places in Scripture is that God always existed in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, but it was the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that actually was involved in the physical creation of the world. 
And it's not just a revelation that teaches us that. We see that in different places in Scripture. But Jesus is the source of all creation. And so then it says this, now we need to tune in. What will the faithful and true witness say to this particular church in 95 AD? And that's the diagnosis. Here's what he says, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. And again, what they would hear is, oh, we're neither Hierapolis or Colossae, you know, it's just like our water. We are just like our water. We're neither cold or hot. And then that brings us to a lukewarmness. That's the, this word lukewarmness is only used once in scripture. And this is where it's at in this, this chapter here. So we have the hot springs, we have the cold springs, but this is neither after piping at six miles uphill, you know, from the uphill down, it wasn't hot, it wasn't healing, it wasn't warm and healing or cool and refreshing, it was lukewarm and foul tasting. So he's taking their condition that's going on in their city and he's making an application, hey, this is how you are to me. Verse 16, he says this, these are hot springs, you see people are there now. He says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were cold or hot. And then he says this, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Does this sound like strong language? Because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And who's saying this? Jesus. Whoa, we better think about this, right? And it, I've, if you study this word, in the Greek, this word for vomit, you know, it means barf, puke, sidewalk pizza, you know, whatever you want to call it, that's it. That's the word. It means just what it says. I remember uh, when I was about 13 years old, uh, I was having dinner with my family and uh, um, mom had made some Brussels sprouts. I, I don't like Brussels sprouts, especially Brussels sprouts that taste kind of like vinegar. Anyway, so they're there, and I'm just not eating them. And then Dad, who typically wouldn't pay any attention to what I was eating or not eating, but carried a lot of weight and authority in our house, he said, take some of those. And, and so I politely declined, which my brother's eyes went like, whoa, this is new. Nobody's ever politely declined Dad before. And then he said, I said, take some. And so you know, I put three on my plate, and then strategically... Throughout the rest of the meal, I'm working my way all around those Brussels sprouts. And then finally, dad noticed that and he said, eat them, which is weird because he normally never did, you know, eat them. And so I dutifully, and I, you know, I just knew I wouldn't like them. I forked one and then the other and then the third one into my mouth. And, and it wasn't 30 seconds. And I knew those things ain't stand down. <laughs> I backed my chair out ran away from the table, up half a flight of stairs into a bathroom, doors open, this is only about 10 feet away from the table, and then boom, I mean, it came. I mean, I just upchucked, it all came out, and I'm sure you could hear it. I mean, it was like a Technicolor yawn. I mean, it, was a, it all just shot out. And then when I was done, I rinsed my mouth out under the faucet, and then, I, and I'm, I'm like, okay, this is new ground. What's gonna happen to me now? 
You know, at first I just didn't take a portion and that was bad. Now I'm vomiting them up. This is not a good sign. So I decided my best strategy was rinse my mouth out. Then I just went right downstairs, got back in my chair, even though I was basically done eating, and then just started eating a little bit more. And I thought, maybe this will work. My dad didn't say anything. It was just kind of nobody said a word. It was the elephant in the room. My dad finally got up and left. I went up and left. And to this day, my dad has never forced me to eat anything in my entire life. So much for that. And what I determined, Brussels sprouts are not okay. For me, 13-year-old Kevin, they were bad, terrible. Here's what Jesus is saying. Lukewarmness, not okay. Lukewarmness, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He's saying there are no, now catch this because people say different things on this. I'm telling you, there are no lukewarm, in this sense, Christians. Now some people say, well, well I've been taught, you know, that if you're not really on fire for God, but you're a believer, you know, you're kind of lukewarm, you're not hot or cold. This is, you know, a kind of apathetic Christian. But the context argues against this. He's saying he's writing this church in Laodicea, and he's basically accusing them, you call yourself a church, but you're filled with people who don't really believe. People who have not been transformed by the gospel. And he's saying, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. What's he saying? Lukewarm people make God sick. That's the implication. And so people talk about, well, you know, hot is our fervent love for Jesus and, and cold is, is not, is, you know, rejecting Jesus or following a false God and lukewarm is neither. Here's what lukewarm is. It's where you're in the middle where you believe in God. You're okay with God. You believe Jesus. You believe that he existed and you believe he's, he's a good guy. And you come to church, but you've never really experienced the transforming power of Christ. You've never come to terms with your own sin and that Christ was the only way. And this is what is happening to churches all over America because they don't want to talk about sin, which it makes no sense to me. We can't say that this is sin. We can't say this lifestyle is a sin, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. It doesn't matter. We can live a sinful lifestyle, but nobody wants to talk about that. But if we don't have sin, then Jesus didn't need to die. And we wouldn't need the gospel, the good news that he did die for us. And our problem is sin. All, that's true for all of us. And so you have this picture of people who look lukewarm. They're not saved. They may call themselves Christians. They may say they follow God, but they're far from God and they don't really believe most of what's in here. Lukewarm. And I've seen this, I think, more this year or have noticed it more this year than any other year of my life. You know, where they, people, they say they belong to God, but they've replaced God's law with just kind of a, a shifting uh, standard, a sense of right and wrong that, that's just their own. 
And when they do that, then right becomes anything they do. And then wrong is anything they don't like as long as somebody else does it. And, and then that's how they live. And so people who say they're Christians, but they're actually being self-righteous. And they follow their own standard and they serve no purpose for God. They usually often work against what God's actually doing. They make up their own God, as I say often enough. But when you do that, you're becoming your own God. And we see it happening all over. Here's what we learn from this passage. That self-righteous hypocrites are way more difficult to reach with the gospel than people who cold-heartedly reject Jesus. Self-righteous hypocrites who say they're Christians are harder to reach than anybody else. The liberal church ladies harder to reach than a self-deceiving dying breed atheist. I mean, there's not many of those atheists around anymore, but hey, at least you, you can argue with them whether God exists, whether Jesus is God, all those things. No one harder to reach than a false Christian. Why? Because they're self-deceived in the area of religion. They're self-deceived in their relationship, they think, with Jesus. They, they think they're rich and wealthy. They think they're set. They don't have a need. And here's what Jesus says as he continues in verse 17. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything. They're self-sufficient. They're doing great. They're better off than the other cities around them. They're, they're slaying it. They're crushing it. And wealth and safety, the safety it provides, gives people a false sense of security. And you know what I'm going to say when you start talking about wealthy people, right? Because I say it all the time. If you're here at Grace, everybody here, the poorest among us here, you are in the top 5% wealthiest people in the world, you don't feel that way because you live in America. But if you're sitting here today, you're in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. And the problem with that is it brings a sense of security. We're not worried about our next meal. We're not worried about how to feed our family or shelter them for the most part. You know, it's... It, we get comfortable, we feel like we don't need much from God, and so our relationship with him tends to cool. You know, we, we talk about it in our, in our four Ds. You know, we say, well, what are we doing here as a church? Well, we wanna help people discover truth. Hey, God loves you, he created us, he sent Jesus to die for our sins. Okay, discover truth. And then, once people know that, then they have this opportunity to decide on Jesus. And so a lot of people said, yeah, I'm good with that. I'm down with that. Jesus died for me. He loves me. That's great. But then the third D is, if that's true in your life, you will demonstrate change in your life. So let me challenge you with that a little bit. If you've truly decided on Jesus, you've repented, and now you're following him, your life will change. And how, how do you know that? You will do things that you normally wouldn't do that you're only doing because Jesus is in your life. 
If you can't look back on anything, why am I doing this? And the answer isn't because God wants me to, even though I don't. That's a sign that you've never demonstrated change, which is a sign that you've never really decided on Jesus. You've never really become a believer. Because real believers will demonstrate change in their life, and then eventually they will deploy for others. They will deploy to help other people know about Christ because we have this awareness that we all deserve hell, and there are friends, neighbors, people we know and care about that are all heading for hell if we don't do something because God's tasked us with sharing the message. That's how we should live, but instead, we can just live our, our lives for us. We can chase wealth and life and relationships and success. And the more we do that, then our relationship with God kind of cools. And then sometimes with that, you know, we start maybe feeling a, a little bit of dissatisfaction or loneliness. And so we crank up the social media and we get the Netflix, you know, flicking and we're, we're doing all that to try to numb all that pain that we're, you know, we just, we busy ourselves with media and it never satisfies. It's always something missing. We're chasing the wrong thing. As an older te uh, teenager in Pueblo, uh, Pueblo doesn't have a, a, like a, a horse racing track, but they have a dog track. I don't know if any of you have been to a dog track, but you know, a few times as a teenager, I went with a friend of mine to the dog, God track, dog track. You know, I didn't really go there to gamble because my dad had already taught me that you know, the house always wins and you never have an advantage gambling. And basically what Dave Marty and and these other guys you know, say in our church, which is this, which I already learned from dad, which is gambling's for people who are bad at math. You know? So I didn't really, wasn't there to gamble. But I was there to you know, see what's going on and check it out. My friend, you know, he would you know, bet on the odd dog. If you don't know what you're doing, you just bet odd dogs. You know, that's half the field. You know? Odd dogs, go odd dogs, go odd dogs. You know? And then what are you watching? Watching a bunch of greyhounds chase a little fake rabbit around the course you know, that they usually name Sparky or something like that. You know, there it goes, Sparky, you know, and then boom, all these dogs are chasing it. And the weird thing is, is it's not a real rabbit. If a dog ever caught Sparky, he would be very disappointed. This is just some fake fur on a piece of wire, you know, no meat, no nothing. It, the dog would realize I've been duped my entire life this doesn't matter. This is nothing. What am I working so hard for? That's what we're doing. We chase. We, we pursue. We, we want that, that next promotion, that next this, whatever. We, we keep thinking something's going to satisfy. And then even in our culture, even from non-believers, we hear them say, when I finally attained the top, I looked around and thought, oh, th this is it? And it did not satisfy. That's what God's telling us all along. We cannot find our satisfaction in relationships, in money, in success, in power. We will all, we think, man, if I got there, I'd be set. If I had that person, I'd be set. We get there, it's, it never completely satisfies. 
None of those things can fill the void that we have in our soul for a connection with God. It won't bring the satisfaction you're looking for. Only Jesus can fill our soul's longing. Only he can satisfy. The problem is, because we're so unneedy and because we're, we're not dependent on God like we should be, a lot of times we don't stop and analyze our own, our own soul's cry. He continues in verse 17, he says, because you say I'm rich and I've become wealthy and have no need of anything, and he's saying, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You think you're good. You think everything's okay. And even spiritually, you think you're good. And a lot of these, these people are super hypocritical they will judge you and they think they're good. They don't even know Christ. And Jesus is saying, wow, you're wretched, you're miserable. You're poor, blind, naked. And, and why is that a reality? Because sometimes our wealth and our success, it gets in the way of the most important thing, which is a relationship with God. And it's nearly impossible for a person to get saved if they don't believe they need to get saved. If they're sort of satisfied with their life and they think somehow they're good with God because they're not Hitler or they haven't committed you know, genocide or whatever. Hey, my sins are relatively small and God's saying, no, you don't understand my righteousness if you're thinking that way. And so if lukewarmness is the problem, that we can all tend to have. And what's the cure? That's what he says next in verse 18. He says, I advise you. If Jesus says, I advise you, does that mean something? Jesus says, hey, I, I advise you. We should tune in, right? I advise you, buy from me. Now, this is strange to our ears. Buy from me. Buy from, uh, what am I gonna buy it with? How am I gonna buy? Salvation is a gift, it's grace, it's free. What's this buy from me? But basically he's gonna give them three things they need to buy and it's three things that will connect with their city and their culture that he's using as illustrations to teach truth. He's gonna say, buy from me, but we can't buy our way from God. Well, here's the sense that he's using this and remember some of these people would be Jewish people background, so they know this, Isaiah 55.1, where he says, you there, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He's saying, come, buy from me. You don't need money. Come, I will provide for you. He's saying, same thing. It's the same thing here. Salvation's free, but if you want to say there's a cost, well, the cost would be giving up all of your reliance on yourself. All self-reliance. All self-sufficiency. Let that all go. All self-righteousness. All self-wisdom. 
And then he says, hey, buy from me. And he's got three counterpart, three counterparts to what they're relying on as a rich city. He says, first of all, verse, he continues, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Gold refined by fire. What's that mean? Remember, Scripture's telling us that in the future, that all of our works, that they will be refined by fire and the wood, hay, stubble will be consumed. Basically saying, hey, all your wealth, all your success, all your privilege, all your attainments, all that is gonna be judged by God with fire and it's all gonna burn away and the only thing that's gonna be left is what you did for God. Get that from God. Get your gold from him. Don't get it from the bank in Laodicea. Get it by what you've laid up with God by following him. Second, what do we buy? And buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. So, hey, they depend on their rich Raven black, soft wool, that's made them rich. He's saying, hey, don't rely on that. Buy from me white garments. And what's he talking about? Garments that have been purified. Exchange your wool for garments of righteousness that only Jesus can provide. In Revelation 7:14, John says this. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Hold it, washed? In blood? It's counterintuitive. What, what, what do we wash in blood and it comes out white? Our souls need to be cleansed because they are all, every one of us, are sin-stained. And God is telling us through the death of Jesus Christ who paid our sin penalty through his shed blood, we can be cleansed, we can be righteous, our sins wiped away, Christ's righteousness imputed onto us that we do not deserve. And then third, he says the last thing is the eyes. He says, and by eye salve to apply to your eyes so that you may see. You're rich, you think you understand everything, but you're actually blind. You're rich selling eye ointment. Hey, you need to buy eye ointment from me so you can see your true spiritual condition. Apply that to your eyes. And why is he saying it? Why would he even tell him this? Why is he giving him this challenge? Next verse tells us, verse 19 says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. It's actually because of this word discipline that some people think he's actually writing to lukewarm Christians. But again, this discipline that we associate with what God does with believers who are way out of whack it also applies in the New Testament and other places to unbelievers. God rebukes and disciplines non-believers just like he does believers. But 
The rest of the context in these verses before and after this is telling us these people aren't believers. These are, these are people Jesus vomits out of his mouth. Therefore, he says, to whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, he's saying, I'm loving you. I'm giving you a chance. I'm warning you. I'm telling you. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be passionate and repent. Wake up. Get with it. Repent. That's what he's telling us. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open, open rebuke than love that's concealed. He's telling us, hey, he's telling us the truth so that we will repent, turn to Jesus for salvation, follow him in our life. And then, when Jesus is calling them to get serious and, and repent, he follows with this gracious tender invitation in the next verse, and it's a verse probably all of us have heard, verse 20. Behold, he says, some repent, and then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. You see, Jesus tells us the truth but then he offers us forgiveness. And this picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking, he's waiting. Jesus doesn't force. He's not gonna kick the door in to have a relationship with you. He's not gonna force you to love him back. He loves you. He invites you. He wants to have a connection with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. But you gotta open your heart. You gotta allow it to happen. You gotta receive his love, that's what he's saying here. We've got to open up to him. And we do that with true repentance. And if we do truly repent to God, then we receive a promise that's in the next verse, 21. It says this. The one who overcomes, and again, all through this, the one who overcomes is the one who's endured, and all true Christians will endure. So the one who overcomes, the true Christian... I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. Back that up. I, for the one who overcomes, check this out. I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. What we have here, amazingly, is an extension of the promise that Jesus gave to the apostles, the 12 apostles, when he told them, hey, in my millennial kingdom that is still future, when I come and reign on earth for a thousand years, which Revelation talks about a lot, hey, when that happens, he's saying, you will sit on thrones, you will co-reign in some sense with me, and I don't want to really unpack that, I don't think I can, what that looks like, but he's expanding that from the apostles to all those who are truly redeemed saying somehow, in some way, in his millennial kingdom on earth in the future that we who are believers, somehow we co-reign with him. And so we keep having this promise from God. And then he says in verse 22, he ends it like he's ended all these. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means we all need to listen 
and hear what Jesus says to each church, but this is the church that we need to listen to the most. This is the church that's in the biggest problem. And so the question is, are you hearing what Jesus is saying to you today here in his word? Are you hearing it? Now, some of you, you've been here a long time. You know my biggest fear as a pastor, I've been here 30 years, more than 30 years. My biggest fear is that somebody would be a part of our church. They, they would believe in God, believe in Jesus. Of course, he existed. You can prove it. And, and they would enjoy singing, enjoy hanging out with people at Grace. Enjoy all that, but not truly be a believer. Not really be connected to God. And, and the way that happens is, we, we come in and we feel kind of good about ourselves and we don't have a lot of needs and we think we're okay and we really have, we're blind to how evil we are and how bad that our own sin is. All of our sin, our life, all the sins in our entire life. And we think God's gonna kind of wink at that and he's not gonna really care. That is not the case. God's saying, our sin is way worse than we think because we don't understand his righteousness and his blazing holiness. And because we can't see that and we can't get that into our minds and souls, we downplay our own sin. But he's telling us each of our sin, we deserve an eternity in hell separated from God forever. That's the clear teaching of Jesus and this word, God's word. If we don't understand that, then we just come to church and we feel comfortable and we don't have a lot of needs and everything's good. There's a lot of nice people here and, and people are fairly moral and, and you're a fairly moral person so you kind of fit in here and everything's good. And in reality, you're lukewarm and when you think you're gonna get to heaven, God will spew you, vomit you out of his mouth because you thought you were good enough. You thought you were okay. You didn't really think you needed the blood of Christ to cover your sins. And when you talked about that or even understood that, you weren't really committed to following him. You're okay on discovering truth. You're okay on deciding for Jesus, whatever that means. But demonstrating, that's not really shown up. Deploying, no, not really, unless it kind of works in your favor for some reason. My biggest fear is that one of us here, some of us here, would not really have a relationship with God. It's the most important thing. Be honest with yourself. Believe what Jesus says. Admit your sin. Know really, truly, it deserves eternal hell, the right punishment. And then understand that Jesus came to pay the ultimate price, a high cost, his own death. He allowed himself to be killed by his own creation in order to, to pay the penalty for our sin. Infinite God can pay for my sins and your sins with his death. But we have to have faith. We have to have belief. We have to repent turn from our way of living to follow God and put our faith only in him knowing there's nothing we can contribute to our own salvation. There's no good deed that helps that at all. It's all Jesus. And if you haven't done that, 
do that today. I beg you, do that today. Admit your sin. Turn to Christ. Put your faith in him with a desire to follow him. And and I want, before we close the service, I just want to give you a chance to to think on that and make sure that's true of you, that you're you're truly his. It's the most important decision. And and I understand some of you will be wrestling because you're thinking, Wow, I've had a rough week, you know, and my relationship with God this week hasn't been like what it should be. Or if you've got caught up in some sin and you're right now, you're just kind of struggling. How can I even be a believer? How could this happen? I can't believe I've done this. I believe all that, but somehow I've taken this step backwards. How could that possibly happen? If you're torn up over your sin, that's probably an indication you are a believer or you wouldn't care so much. But you, as a believer, repent, come back. The door's open. Come to him. Let's stand and pray. Father God, before we open this up to an invitation, a song, a closing song where people can respond to give them time to think, Lord, we ask that your spirit would would interact with our heart, attack our hearts to help us to see with spiritual eyes, your eyes, where we are. Are we a believer? Help us to to examine ourselves, as you say. And Lord, any of us here that are not believers, Lord, pull them, draw them, help them to see. And Father, those of us who are believers, who we've just, we're on the wrong track and we know it's wrong and we're, we're just wallowing in guilt. I help us come out of that. God, thanks for loving us. Help all of us turn our hearts more closely to you. In Christ's name, amen.